Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. The greatest trick management ever played was convincing workers that unions are uncool. Media management in particular were early innovators at this. In my early years of work as a journalist, by which I mean like most of my first 15 years on the job, I never considered myself a vulnerable, precarious, easily replaceable worker without benefits, rights, or recourse. No, I thought of myself as a freelancer, master of my own destiny, a contract man, not a company man. I fancied myself a hotshot gun for hire. I was not some timesheet punching salary man chained to a desk. I was a journeyman, free to ply my trade via laptop from any coffee shop on the planet. And that worked out really well for management. Other industries have figured out this trick. App workers, for example, they're encouraged to think of themselves not as pizza delivery boys paid by the kilometer and dependent on tips. No, they are in the gig economy. And this is their gig, you know, like musicians have. They're basically rock stars. Some companies, by the way, actually do call their workers rock stars. That is a thing. Uh, ninjas, I've heard that one too. Amazon calls its warehouse workers Amazonians. Starbucks baristas are referred to by corporate as Starbucks partners. That's the trick. It's a pretty widespread trick, but it's a trick that might not be working as well as it used to. You've probably heard by now that a wave of unionizing is hitting not just Amazon, but also big chains like Starbucks and many others. Sweeping across the US and Canada, it has of course hit this here digital media sector as well. Canada Land's workers followed the example set by Vice, BuzzFeed, Vox, Slate, and many others, and this is now proudly a union shop. A recent LA Times article says that a new generation is reviving unions. Uh, we, we got the juggler. We went for the juggler. And we went for the top dog because we want every other industry, every other uh, business to know that things have changed. We're going to unionize. We're not going to quit our jobs anymore. And this is a prime example of the power that people have when they come together. That was Chris Smalls, a former Amazon worker who spearheaded the first ever Amazon union in Staten Island, New York, in April 2022. Amazon is notoriously hard to unionize. Accusations of anti-union tactics at warehouses have been widely reported. These include surveillance, false messaging, intimidation, other unionization campaigns are happening at Amazon warehouses across the states and here in Canada, including one in Montreal. It's been happening with gig workers, too. In 2020, couriers with the food delivery app Foodora won the right to form a union despite being initially categorized as independent contractors. They won that battle. Maybe they lost the war because in the wake of that, Foodora then pulled out of Canada completely. But the workers ended up with a $3.4 million settlement. And as mentioned, there is Starbucks. 
There are more than 200 Starbucks locations involved in union organizing right now, with over 50 stores now being certified. But here in Canada, there is only one Starbucks that has unionized, and that's in Victoria, B.C. There are a group of five more stores in Lethbridge that have applied for union certification just last month, and there's another Starbucks location in Calgary's Millrise Center that applied for certification just last week. But will they get it? Will that first unionized Starbucks location in Victoria break ground and set the standard for the chain, maybe for other chains too, across Canada, or will corporate snuff it out before the union contagion spreads? Our reporter, Cherie Suturin, has this story. Wait for it. So, I'm a union kid. My dad had a union job as a high school caretaker with Toronto's QP Local 4400. And growing up, some of my most formative memories were during the times when he was on strike. The importance of pensions, health benefits, and fair pay has been etched into my brain. But I also know how difficult it is to start a union at a workplace that might not love that idea. At my first staff journalism job at the now-defunct Star Metro Vancouver newspaper, persistent workplace issues led me and my coworkers to form a union. But that was a short-lived accomplishment, because just a few months after negotiating our first contract, the office was completely shut down, and we were all laid off. Now, I'm not saying Torstar closed that shop because of reunion. I really don't know. But in recent years, there have been a handful of newly unionized media companies that have had layoffs and shutdowns. Remember HuffPo Canada? So that's why this new wave of unionizing in the retail sector is so interesting. Because despite the fact that workers at these jobs tend to be in precarious positions, and despite the millions of dollars that corporations put behind tactics to discourage their workers from unionizing, and despite the fact that labor boards in charge of regulation often take years to address those practices, despite all these things, these workers are pushing to organize. What are they up against? And why are they doing it now? I met one former barista named Izzy, who helped me to understand what's happening on the ground. My name is Izzy Adachi. Um, I was a worker organizer at the first unionized Starbucks in Canada. I worked there on and off for about two and a half years. Izzy was one of the organizers of the first Starbucks location in Canada to successfully form a union in August 2020. The store negotiated its first contract less than a year later in June 2021. There are five stores in Lethbridge, Alberta, one in Calgary, and one in Surrey, B.C., that have applied for a union certification vote. But Izzy's store in Victoria, B.C., is still currently the only Starbucks in Canada to be officially unionized. Izzy has since left that position, and she's speaking out about her experience. Our associate producer, Cassidy, went to meet her outside a Starbucks location in Victoria. How does it feel to be around Starbucks again? Uh, I, I suppose bittersweet. I 
just know that there's some nasty labor practices going on in there sometimes and that makes me a little sad but hopeful as well just with the amount of stores that have shown interest in getting unionized and, and sort of building collective power to make like positive change in their workplaces and communities. As Izzy describes, the idea for a union started with the workers themselves. They experienced increased risks during the pandemic while working harder than ever. The first serious conversation we had was around the pandemic because we genuinely felt like deeply unsafe in the workplace. I tried to wear a face shield when I was working in the drive through window because at the time the knowledge was that COVID spread through droplets and they wouldn't put in a plexiglass barrier between us and the customers in the drive through And so when I was wearing that face shield, the district manager came in and told me that I was not allowed to wear it because in her opinion, the condensation uh, could spread through my masks and uh, collect on the face shield and then drip down onto customers' uh, drinks. Later on in the pandemic, of course, Starbucks wound up supplying uh, better PPE. I like to think that's in part uh, because of the advocacy that the union did. Um, but that was something that was deeply unnerving for all of us because we saw that they were sort of playing armchair epidemiologist and making decisions not based on what was going to keep us safe, but what was going to keep business flowing. Protection and pay during the pandemic was a huge issue at the Douglas Street Victoria Starbucks. It's a drive through location, too, near a busy highway, so the volume of customers is higher than in a regular store. But there was another issue that Izzy said her and her coworkers were experiencing. Violence in the workplace. Well, it was incredibly anxiety-inducing and stressful to be going in every single day and wondering, like, how am I going to... How am I going to deal with like the customer that's going to yell at me today? Because you know it's going to happen. Um, how am I going to deal with someone else getting screamed at even? Or someone who throws garbage at my coworker through the drive through window? Or someone who screams like racial slurs or sexually harasses people in the workplace? It's like a constant thing for retail workers to be dealing with people coming in and treating them like garbage because there's no respect. It was really scary. Um, a lot of us were really anxious about getting sick and dealing with like customer harassment. We were all of a sudden being told that we were essential after years of being told that these were unskilled jobs for teenagers. And so it was a very dramatic shift, especially when after being told that we were like essential frontline heroes that when they took away our service pay, which was our like pandemic increase of a few dollars, that went away within like a month or two of the pandemic. So not even at the peak of the pandemic were we getting paid like heroes, quote unquote. When Izzy went to management about what was happening on the floor, she says the response was less than helpful. That all changed once the store voted to unionize. Izzy said they finally started hearing from management a lot more than usual. They didn't really react to that harassment. A large part of like why we felt like we needed a union was because the only people who are going to keep us safe is ourselves. We kept it under wraps for a very long time when we were sort of getting the card signed and applying for certification uh, to the point that our manager and Starbucks didn't find out that we were like unionizing until we had already applied for certification. And when we applied, we had 90% of the baristas and 87% of the shift supervisors signing cards. Turns out, Izzy's store wasn't the only one facing these exact issues. 
Remember those five Starbucks stores organizing in Lethbridge? I got hold of one of their organizers, and we agreed to conceal their identity due to concerns that their job security would be threatened if they spoke out. According to this worker, the harassment at work, lack of PPE, and low pay were all issues. And if Starbucks could afford a raise during the pandemic, why not all the time? Some of my coworkers didn't feel particularly safe going to work with customers not wearing masks. Um, and that sort of spurred a lot of um, discussion, I guess. Um, and then I think another factor with the pandemic was that uh, we received hazard pay for a couple months. Uh, we all got a $3 raise if we if we came into work. It was optional at that point if we wanted to work or not. And if you did work, you were making $3 more an hour. And then um, that stopped. The pandemic wasn't over. Um, and not the sort of not over that it is now, but it was like really not over. Um, it, we, we stopped getting the hazard pay. And I think that sort of made a lot of people be like, hang on, they were just able to pay us more. Um, what if they could just always do that? Um, so I think in a lot of ways, it's sort of like, open people's eyes to the possibility that like, oh, they actually can implement a lot of change really quickly if they have to. In 2020, Starbucks posted billions of dollars in losses as the pandemic kept people home around the world. But that crunch was short-lived because by the end of 2021, Starbucks had already grown its revenues beyond what was being earned pre-pandemic. The last quarter of 2021 was a record setter for the company. Last year, Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson brought home $20.4 million U.S., a 39% raise. But on the worker level, when concerns were brought to management, the response was less than ideal. Yeah, some of us were told to quit if we didn't like it and that we could look for employment elsewhere. I wanted to find out how widespread these issues were within the Starbucks Canada chain. Pablo Guerra is an organizer with the United Steelworkers, a union that's working with individual Starbucks stores. Guerra says that he has heard similar stories, particularly about worker harassment and lack of protection from customers. And it's why he's been traveling so much between stores across Canada, meeting with workers who want to unionize. I managed to catch him on the phone while he was on the road in Lethbridge, Alberta. On May 25th in Lethbridge, they have a... Um... Uh, a meeting. Uh, I think it was attended by regional managers um, and area managers. This is what happened. One of the employers talked to the HR there and mentioned that there have been sexual comments and harassment. And the answer from HR was, let me see what I can do. That was the answer. No, like, uh, I'm going to talk to you after the meeting. I want to get more information so I can see what could happen. No, just let me see what I can do. That answer is not good enough. No, it's not good enough, right? In a normal place, you're going to have investigation, right? That seems to be a pattern. If it was only in one Starbucks, uh, it can be an isolated uh, incident. But when you hear it, people from Calgary, Leverage, Vancouver, Victoria, seems to be like a pattern. On May 3rd, Starbucks announced a raise and a bump in benefits for all workers starting this summer. All workers, that is, except for the unionized ones. Over 50 unionized stores in the U.S. and the one store in Canada will not be receiving that raise. 
the collective agreement negotiated by the Douglas Street workers established a starting wage of $15.75 for baristas, with a raise of about 40 to 50 cents for each year worked. The company-wide wage increase would place many workers at non-unionized stores above the Douglas Street wages. On Friday, June 10th, the United Steelworkers filed an unfair labor practice complaint against Starbucks with the BC Labor Relations Board. In a press release, USW Western Canada Director Scott Lunny said that the wage increase was, quote, an effort to compel its unionized employees to cease to be members of the union, end quote. He also said that the union requested Starbucks to mutually agree to extend the wage increase to the Douglas Street workers. That request was denied. Declaring a union certification vote is one of the major steps that must happen if workers seek to organize an official union. And it's the step by which management officially becomes notified of the organizing effort, because all votes must go through a provincial labor board. It's when a company might start employing counter-union tactics, which can range from messaging to legal challenges. In the U.S., the National Labor Relations Board is seeking injunctions against Starbucks to rehire 10 employees that the board claims were illegally discharged, forced out, or placed on unpaid leave. In Victoria, at the Douglas Street location, Izzy Adachi remembers what it was like as the union began to take shape. And so once we did apply for certification and had to sort of come out, we got a lot of messages from Starbucks corporate about how we don't need a third party to represent us and how we're breaking up the Starbucks family and that they were disappointed in our decision to join a union and all sorts of stuff that like corporations pull out. So we would just get like these surprise visits from higher ups in the company and they would sort of introduce themselves and try and talk to the workers about like the issues that people were facing. And like because of the way that BC labor law works, they weren't allowed to be super overt with like, hey, don't vote for the union. But they would always be very like suggestive about what could be done and how it's always better to have a direct relationship with management, which is funny because for a lot of these managers, this was the first time any of them had ever talked to us and so they would have people come in and sometimes they would just watch us too like they would just be looking at us which was the the weirdest ones where like they were from Starbucks corporate and they were called like operations managers or something and they were nominally there to improve the way that things sort of were working on the floor. Izzy also said that after management got wind of the campaign she saw her hours being cut so much that she went under the 20 hours per week needed to qualify for company insurance. It's not clear if this was deliberate retribution on the part of management, which would have been illegal. But cutting hours and loss of pay and benefits are things that workers in the process of unionizing are afraid might happen as a retaliation. In March 2022, a union drive by Starbucks workers at the Chinook Center in Calgary, Alberta, failed to attain the votes needed to unionize. During that campaign, Starbucks Canada appealed to the Alberta Labor Relations Board, contending that because many baristas worked at multiple locations in the city, only the ones for which that specific store was their home store should have their votes counted. The appeal was withdrawn, but that move had an impact. 
It was part of the reason why the Lethbridge workers decided to certify five stores at once and why they wanted to do it as fast as possible. We thought that it would be best to be as fast as possible, which was, I think it worked. And we all just kind of hyper-focused for three days and put all of our energy into it. And at the Lethbridge locations, anti-union corporate messaging has also begun circulating over email. Candleland has obtained several of these emails sent to Starbucks baristas over the past few weeks. An email titled, Get the Facts, contained a graphic with a number of slogans. We believe the best partner experience is created together, without a union between us. Ask yourself, is what I'm hearing a fact or a promise? Another email lists some claims from Starbucks management about what unionizing really means. A new barista at the unionized Douglas Street that works 25 hours a week will pay around $300 a year in dues, plus a one-time $126 union member initiation fee to join the union. Union dues are calculated on earnings, so the more you earn, the more you pay. However, Pablo Guerra, organizer for USW, says this messaging is completely false. The Victoria branch paid $300 on union dues, right? But they don't mention the real truth. They don't mention that they get uh, between 20 to 23 percent back because it's taxable for the redemption, right? And another thing, another lie they put it there was that union charge initiation fee. We don't charge initiation fee. That's totally lie. I've reached out to Starbucks for comments several times but I have not received a response. The allegations about what is happening on the ground at these Starbucks locations is really concerning. But I do want to back up a bit here. Because there are a lot of Starbucks baristas that say they love many aspects of their job. And Starbucks often offers more benefits and higher starting wages compared to many other entry-level service and retail sector jobs. In fact, that's what one barista told CNBC in a story about the recent wave of Starbucks unions. I love Starbucks and I love the benefits they have, but it could always be better. I currently have four jobs in total. I would like to cut that down to one. And according to Starbucks, the unions create a barrier between their workers and the company. In April 2022, leaked tape from a Starbucks management call in which interim CEO Howard Schultz declared unions to be an, quote, outside force unquote, that would disrupt the company. One of the responsibilities in this changing world that we have right now of a store manager, of a district manager, of an RDO, is to really understand who the people in our stores are, to talk to them specifically about the role and responsibility that we have as a company to them and their families, and to encourage them to really understand what it might mean to vote for a union. And so it's critically important that everyone chooses to vote. Now, there are stories, I, can't, I wasn't there, but there are stories that people potentially have been bullied not to vote. Think about that. That's not the Starbucks way. The bullying Schultz is referring to is likely reference to two complaints the company filed with the National Labor Relations Board in April alleging that Workers United, a major union, had physically blocked and coerced workers who were not in favor of unionization. 
the union denies this. A big part of Starbucks' messaging is that unions would create this barrier between Starbucks and their baristas. A website with the banner, We Are One Starbucks, launched by Starbucks amidst the recent wave of unionizing, details all the ways in which voting for a union would disrupt that important relationship. But Izzy disagrees. Once we unionized, I talked to way more Starbucks managers than I ever had before, and that like even like 10 year partners had were talking to more managers than they had ever had before. And they also don't mention the signing bonus that we got when we signed our contract uh, of a couple hundred dollars. And so they're always going to try and make it seem like it's not worth it. But in terms of the protections that we get from paying our union dues, like having union representation during any meetings with upper management, or just like having Starbucks be contractually accountable to keeping us like psychologically safe in the workplace and dealing with customer harassment, I'd say it's a deal. A lot of these tactics are known to longtime union organizers and people who have been involved in the labor movement. I spoke to Derek Johnstone, special assistant to the national president at United Food and Commercial Workers Canada. He said that large multinational corporations will pull out all the stops when it comes to preventing a union. With transnationals and retail like Walmart, they have um, like a multi-prong kind of approach to pushing back against efforts by their employees to join the union. He's seen a lot of these tactics with Walmart, which currently has no unionized stores in Canada or the U.S., despite multiple attempts. In 2000, workers at a meat department in Jacksonville, Texas, voted to form a union. Quickly after, Walmart moved to remove meat-cutting departments from their stores, which they claimed to be a cost-saving decision. There was only one Walmart union ever formed in Canada, at a store in Jonquière, Quebec, in 2004. But it was short-lived. While negotiating their first-ever union contract with Walmart, the company shut down the store, laying off nearly 200 workers. Walmart argued at the time that it was because it was struggling to turn a profit at that location. So the first approach is it's at the store level, right? What they'll do is the store manager will get wind of his employees having meetings with the union and he'll start to he'll find out that there's a call it an organizing drive within the store. And then the manager will typically find people within the store who he knows are going to be loyal to management's interests and start almost like organizing a counter sort of movement in the store. One of the um, drives we had, we're getting some momentum um, at the drive and then lo and behold, uh, the clippings from the Jean-Pierre closure started making themselves in the store. On February 16th, 2022, Vice News published leaked tape from a meeting at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, New York, in which a company official is talking to the workers about joining a union, specifically telling them things might get worse if they move forward with their unionizing effort. The voices you're going to hear are between that official and an unnamed worker. So wait, you're saying we could end up with worse? What what does that mean by that? Can't promise what's going to happen. Amazon can't promise you that they're going to walk into negotiations and the negotiations will start from the date. They could start from minimum wage, for instance. 
So, you're saying that Amazon's going to save them? No, I just said I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. So why put that out there? This is the sort of thing that Derek is talking about, the type of anti-union rhetoric that warns workers about the dangers of unions without talking about the benefits. The next step is that they will use their really infinite legal budget to do everything they can through the courts, uh, through the labor board, through the actual courts to, to stall any sort of progress made. And then the last step is, as we saw, if all that is not effective in preventing or in um, in seeing the, the workplace not become unionized, uh, then they just they'll just close the close the store, or they'll rip out the department within the store where the workers have um, have, despite all that, uh, maintained solidarity. And um, the response by wealthy employers is to bring in these firms, and these firms, uh, their tactics have changed over over the years. So, but uh, at the end of the day, the goal is still the same, and that's they're paid by wealthy corporations in order to see uh, union organizing drives fail. That's what they do. And um, throughout history, they've had mixed success. Um, and I presume that that will continue to be the case. But um, there's a reason why they exist. According to David J. Dury, professor of labor law at York University, there are strict laws about what an employer can and can't do to prevent a union. In an email, he said that, Labor laws tightly control what an employer can say to employees during a union organizing campaign. Quote, employers can express an opinion that they believe the workers are better off without a union. However, employers cannot say anything that a reasonable employee would interpret as threatening, intimidating, or harassing. I wanted to know more about these third-party firms and what they were being hired to do. After all... It's your legal right in Canada to unionize, but companies are allowed to take actions within the law to push back on that. Their presence has been documented in the U.S., where some researchers have referred to them as labor-busting firms. These types of firms are less widely used in Canada, but one journalist, Mitch Thompson, has written extensively about a couple of firms that have been hired by Canadian companies, such as Honda, Canadian Tire, and importance. One U.S. firm called Positive Management Leadership Incorporated says that they specialize in live simulations to help companies avoid crisis situations. They list union campaigns as one of these possible crisis situations alongside workplace violence and environmental calamities. I caught Mitch on the phone at his home in Toronto, and I asked him what he had found out in his research on this company. So... I remember seeing a talk by an HR representative at Honda talking about um, the system Honda uses to uh, avoid union efforts. And it was based on the principles outlined by a man named Terry Dunn of positive management leadership training. And this is a company that professes to basically help a, a series of employers uh, avoid unions. And really, they assist primarily with, with messaging, uh, including, of course, what are called town hall meetings, which are where management communicates its case for workers not signing up to unionize. One of the things about the law is that there are gray areas. And 
this is often the case where at pretty much all management that <laughs> organizes, say, a town hall meeting to tell workers why they shouldn't unionize. So you're not going to get a, pretty rare that you get a direct threat. Although one could argue that if you say, hey, if you unionize and push for a wage increase, we may not be able to afford that. This may threaten the survival of this company, that there is an implied threat there. That management said there is an obvious power difference between managers and workers. And when managers say, um, we are aware of this union drive, we are opposed to it, that is something workers take note of. And, you know, if management is unhappy, well, the obvious implication is that whether you know, your, your ability to re- remain at that company is, is going to be compromised. There's another firm that Mitch has reported on called AFI Mac. It's a private security firm that says that it helps image-conscious companies to mitigate risk while they're dealing with a labor strike. Thompson notes that historically, AFI Mac has been called into workplaces experiencing a labor stoppage. They were used by Molson Coors in 2021 to ensure the company was operating during a lockout. In November 2021, AFI Mac held a roundtable session with their consultants and lawyers titled how COVID has impacted the workplace. In it, they discuss how they have been keeping an eye on potential union activity. Certainly all the public sector unions, the, the OPSUs, the QPs, uh, the SEIUs, uh, those that are you know very prominent in the service sectors. Um, I think that you'll see more and more of social activism as sort of a precursor to actually trying to organize. So they're, they're out there representing uh, whoever they can. Um, I was talking with one client on Vancouver Island, and um, there they've got, um, I think, uh, I think I forget which union it is, but they're, they have actually shops set up specifically to deal with any, any matters of non-union personnel related to human rights, workers' compensation, occupational health and safety, in order to uh, obviously feed into the idea that these people who are obtaining some support from the unions for their own personal issues with a non-union employer will indeed become the fifth column insurgency movement into that employer. I asked AFI Mac what exactly they meant by a fifth column insurgency, but they have not responded. This idea that a company can just close down a store if it's been unionized is one that keeps coming up again and again. Dury, the law professor, said that it would be certainly illegal for an employer to close a workplace or lay off workers because they had joined a union. But he added that if it did happen, that legal remedy would be difficult. He said that labor boards don't normally prohibit a business from closing, so usually a company would pay damages to the affected workers instead, and the amount would be disputed. Recently, Fudora paid out nearly $3.5 million to couriers when it left Canada. And in the case of the Jonquier Walmart, well, in 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled against Walmart, saying that they had to compensate former employees for closing the store while they were in the middle of labor negotiations. The court ruled that it constituted a change in working conditions, which is a violation of Section 59 of the Quebec Labor Code. This ruling 
came nearly 10 years after employees were laid off. So despite the laws which govern how a company is supposed to behave, Pablo Guerra is worried. I don't know yet, but uh, so far, um, that's my fear. We, um, if we do that, how are we going to fight? Is there's something we have to cross that bridge with the king, right? There are risks to any unionization effort and pros and cons for corporations and workers alike. This recent wave of organizing is happening from the ground up, not led by unions, but by the workers seeking to make positive changes at their jobs. Back in Victoria, Izzy says they're happy with what resulted from the contract negotiation. As part of the collective agreement, the workers started a health and safety committee, which meets with management to address concerns. And they negotiated graduated raises and personal and compassionate care leave. So to her, the fight was worth it. A large part of like why we felt like we needed a union was because the only people who are going to keep us safe is ourselves. Um, Starbucks and their managers um, would almost never stand up for us um, prior to our union. Um, and once that became their obligation, they had to. It was enforceable through our contract. My message to other Starbucks partners who are thinking about getting organized is that nothing changes if nothing changes. And Starbucks is not going to hold themselves accountable. That's our job as their partners. And if they want a real partnership, they should prove that through allowing us to unionize without impediment. That is your Canada land. If you like this show, please support us. Click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read every email you send. We're on Twitter at Canadaland. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was reported by Cherie Suturin with help from Jonathan Goldsby and Cassidy villabron Baracus. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and our technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by so-called Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Leila Savic. Founder and editor-in-chief of La Converse, welcome to Shortcuts. Thank you. Today, Leila, we are going to talk about the struggle to prevent Quebec from turning into Louisiana. It could happen any day now, folks. And YouTubers United, Canada's viral heroes get together to fight the government. Welcome to Shortcuts, Leila, where we talk shit about the news. Thanks for having me.
Layla, the TikTokers and YouTubers of Canada, the meme dancers, the makeup tutors, the guys who film themselves playing video games for audiences of millions, all of these people, they are getting their together to fight Bill C-11. Justin Trudeau is trying to censor your social media. Bill C-11, proposed by Trudeau's government, would give extreme powers to the CRTC, allowing them to essentially control what you see on the internet. I'm working with YouTube to share an update on some new legislation in the works in Canada. It's called the Online Streaming Act. If you're from Canada and you're watching this right now, then what I'm about to say definitely affects you. The reason why is it messes with the algorithms. Our lovely prime minister, Justin Turtamper Trudeau is trying to pass a bill. It's guaranteed to pass at this point with the NDP and Liberals little pact going on. We'll probably force most YouTubers from Canada out of the country. So don't believe that promoting content creator thing because if they wanted to, they would have done it a long time ago. And Layla, these Canadian YouTubers and TikTokers, they've got celebrity allies. Here is Russell Brand on Bill C-11. The push to get Canada's controversial BC-11, otherwise known as the Internet Censorship Bill. I can see why they want to call it C-11. It sounds a little bit less incendiary. Should we do the C-11 bill? Oh, God, that's boring. What's it all about? Making it sure everyone shuts up and stops saying we're undemocratic because of the way we treated them truckers. So I'm going to explain to everybody a little bit more about Bill C-11, not to be confused with Bill C-18. There's actually a trilogy of bills here in which the government is getting involved in media in Canada. And I think we need to disclose, Layla, that you and I have joined a squad. We're on a team. <laughs> a squad. A squad. We have, like, it's a loose coalition. You're an independent publisher. I'm an independent publisher. And we are lobbying the government on a different bill, Bill C-18, the Online News Act, yeah. uh, which is a different thing, but it's part of this suite of bills. So, you know, better to, to disclose than not. We're, you know, actively involved in that legislation, not so much with Bill C-11, which uh, people might remember more about Bill C-10, which is the previous version of this that got a little bit more attention. And now it's this Bill C-11. Let me try to give a quick explainer to our listeners about, about Bill C-11 as I understand it. Ah, it's not going to be so quick. We got to go back to the birth of CanCon here. Why do we have CanCon? Because in the 70s, there were like three channels on TV. And the worry was in this sort of like, you know, Pierre Trudeau-ish post, like this Canadian culture moment of like, we can't just allow ourselves to be overwhelmed and washed in American culture. And if there's just three channels and just Hollywood movies, then all we're going to consume is American. And we need to have Canadian stuff too. And the airwaves that we watch television on belongs to us. So if you want to make a gazillion dollars, they said to the Rogers and the, you know, all the different telecoms, you're going to have to, for your broadcast license, kick some percentage into a fund to make CanCon. And that's the price of doing business in giving Canadians the American stuff that they actually want. That is the birth of the entire system that gave us everything from the beachcombers to Schitt's Creek and telefilm, the whole thing, I think, to generalize a little bit, but that's really like, you know, th that's why they did it. And it was reasonable because mass media at the time had very few channels of distribution and they were, and they were primarily American. So that made sense. The impetus for Bill C-11 is, is a little bit different. It might be completely different because you would have a very difficult time making that argument now to say that unless the government gets involved, we're not going to have Canadian culture on today's mass media, on YouTube, on Netflix on TikTok. 
you'd have a very difficult time arguing that Canadians are being shut out in an age where, like, I don't know, everybody from, like, Lily Singh, like, I don't know, Bieber got a start on YouTube. But we're talking about the big ones there. Like, there really are thousands and thousands and thousands of Canadians. I mean, millions who use these platforms, but thousands who've actually, like... Started there. There's thousands who are currently, like, that's their job. Yeah. You know? Like, it's an industry. Like, They're content creators. Yeah, that's and we mean. sneer at yeah. them, and, we and, and mm. you know, the fact that they are doing, like, whatever, whether it's meme-based stuff, or I think the shorthand is all cat videos, but it's a lot more than that now. But a lot, you know, what you're seeing is a huge explosion of stuff where people are getting paid to make stuff. Some of it is explicitly... Canadian, and some of it is just by a Canadian, and we're speaking to the world, and I would say we're seeing much more representation of who gets to talk and who gets yeah. to build businesses than ever before. So you'd have you'd have a very tough time saying that the reason for this legislation is that if we don't have Bill C-11, we're not going to have all these diverse Canadian voices on our media, because, like, we have them. The reason for Bill C-11 is very different. The reason for Bill C-11, I will argue, is that, and it's, it's it's not an unfair argument, those legacy broadcasters, the Rogers and the other Canadian cable people put, like selling us television through, you know, those, those technologies, they are saying, hey, how come we have to kick in money to this CanCon fund when our chief competition is Netflix, YouTube, Disney+, Apple TV, and they don't? Right? Why, why is the government taxing a Canadian company and forcing us to pay into this CanCon regime and not taxing our foreign competitors? Shouldn't you be helping the Canadian company? And from their point of view, I understand that. Now, you might say that the solution for that is like, you know, maybe nobody should have to pay into the CanCon fund anymore because Canadians don't really watch that stuff anyhow. Yeah. No, that's not the way they went with this. They went the other way. They have Bill C-11, so, you know, Netflix and YouTube and all the rest are going to have to not only pay money into a CanCon fund, but, and this is one of the stickier points, they're going to have to, like, promote those shows in your feed to help with what the algorithm says. The Canadian stuff that comes out of CanCon is going to have to get, like, a certain billing. And it's getting rammed through because we have a liberal NDP partnership and they're, like, really rushing this legislation. This is really serious stuff that I think is going to dictate how culture gets made in Canada for, like, mm -hmm. years, decades. The same way the 70s CanCon regimes, like, it impacted my whole life as a Canadian media worker. Uh, you know, this is, this is, like, these are the rules. So that's the lay of the land as I understand it. And the reason why the YouTubers and the TikTokers are up in arms is because they're afraid of how this is going to impact them. Government doesn't give a damn about them. Government is like, this uh, This law is there to tax Netflix, YouTube, et cetera. It's not for user-generated content. But the problem is, what if you're in the middle? What if you started off as like user-generated content just for fun, but you started making money off of it? And that might even include Canada land. Because like the government keeps saying, this is for commercial media. We only want to tax the commercial media. So what they're afraid of, and what maybe I'm afraid of, I don't know, mm. is like, Imagine a universe where we meet the threshold of like, well, you're making money from streaming, Canada Land, so you're going to have to pay 20% of your revenues into the CanCon fund, but then we can't get any money back from that fund to make Canadian content because that whole 
regime is like, is your screenwriter Canadian? Do you have a six out of 10 score of Canadian? It's built for the TV and film industry. It's not built for the podcasting industry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like taxation without representation. Sounds like Bill you know? C-18. But yeah. It, it, there are <laughs> yeah. some really big similarities, actually. Yeah. There are some really big similarities. And there's some weird crossovers because we talked about J.J. McCullough in the first segment because he wrote this piece for The Washington Post. Mm-hmm. If you were wondering what happened to J.J. McCullough since uh, his, his one appearance on this show, he's become something of a thing on YouTube. He's got millions of views on YouTube. And like... He does YouTube videos about Canada. Millions of people watch him. And he actually represented YouTubers to Parliament. Hello, friends. My name is JJ McCullough, and I am a professional YouTuber from New Westminster, BC. Today, I hope to teach the committee about Canada's vast YouTuber community and why so many of us fear Bill C-11, a bill we did not ask for, do not need, and threatens the success we've already achieved. Dunk on this guy all you want. Okay, with like, and to refresh people's memory, he's got this kind of like goofy hipster conservative kind of look. He's like this skinny dude with like a hipster haircut. He used to have this big hipster mustache, but he's just like conservative. (laughs) And um, he sometimes doesn't, you know, necessarily research his takes uh, as much as you might. And he says a boot in this very pronounced way, which I'm convinced is a troll. He's, He's from New Westminster, B.C., and I think it's like this game he plays where he says a boot and then it's sort of like a dare that people are going to re- like respond to as people do on social media and make fun of him for his supposedly Canadian accent. And then he can say, hey, that's not really nice to make fun of somebody for their accent. But I defy you to find anybody else from New Westminster who says a boot in the same way that JJ does. I think he's putting it on. So, Layla, that's the situation right now. And, you know, the government says that this is all bullshit, which is also similar to what we were hearing before. The Quebec government calling, uh, you know any kind of criticism, fake news. The Heritage Ministry is calling this all, they've they put out, you know, it's, it's been covered widely. The Heritage Minister says there's a lot of bad misinformation about this bill. He says, you know, this bill, this idea that it covers user-generated content, it's not true. That's fake news. Here is what Ian Scott, who runs the CRTC, says about that. 4.2 allows the CRTC to prescribe by regulation user uploaded content subject to very explicit criteria that is also in the act okay so uh i don't know uh, who's lying here if it's the heritage ministry or the crtc but it seems that this bill does cover user generated content and there's this question of like what is the threshold where you consider it commercial and they won't answer that so you're a content creator I'm not a content creator. I'm a journalist. I would not call myself that, but yeah. I know, but we do kind of create content. Yeah, but I think there needs to be a conversation around content creation because I think that, I mean, that's a side note, but I think that content creator is also a way to call yourself when you're, when you do sponsored content rather than journalism. It's part of what we're talking about throughout this whole conversation because what we call ourselves and what we consider ourselves and what something like a law considers us is a point of conflict. And I I hear you, like you've got like different types of media creators. You've got these YouTuber TikTokers, like they're the content creators. No, we're the journalists. I don't know if this bill makes that distinction. Yeah. Uh, But I won't insult you and call you a content creator. (laughs) Please, thank you. (laughs) Okay. The plot sickens um, because here is where another content creator representing, I don't know, TikTokers and YouTubers, this guy who runs the Buffer Festival, which is like a festival of online video. He was speaking to Parliament, and he got confronted by MP Chris Biddle, Liberal MP. Where's he getting his money from? 
Of course, TikTok has said, you know, uh, we represent these creators, and this is bad for the creators. Who are you receiving, which tech companies are you receiving money from? YouTube and TikTok. So this, this is really shocking to me. This is almost like starting a union but taking money from management. This is an extreme conflict of interest. How is this not an extreme conflict of interest? And I guess back to my original point, were you lying to this committee when you first appeared? Um, I don't see how it's any different. Um, you know, we take no government funding and everybody here in support of the bill is deeply invested in government funding and supporting the government's bill. Hmm. He kind of turned it on there, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting point because it's true that like all the stakeholders in the old CanCon system, like the TV production companies and the actors unions and, and the broadcasters, they are lobbying the government for Bill C-11, but they are doing it like they get a lot of money from government. So I guess they're lobbying with the government's money. And then YouTube and TikTok turn around and say, okay, two can play that game. Let's fund these independent creators to go and lobby against the bill. And, but it's a little bit, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit dodgy because it's like you, you think you're getting it from these independent creators, but actually it's funded by big tech. Yeah, but do these independent creators have the funds to defend themselves on their own? That's kind of the problem, right? Like we're not all standing on equal foot here. I mean, I could make a parallel with C18. Let's do it. To, do we have the resources to to strategize, to lobby? Do we have the same amounts of money? Do we have pockets as deep as our friends in legacy media? We don't, right? So how are we going to make our point be heard, right, if we don't have the means to do that? What we have, though— in our fight as journalists is a little bit maybe more of a sense of how these things play out politically. And uh, the National Post reported this week, this very yeah. strange story, but mm -hmm. you and I know the inside track of this. Yeah. Very similar situation emerged mm -hmm. where when we were putting together this coalition of independent news publishers, somebody said, well, nothing concrete, nothing confirmed here, but maybe Google would fund our efforts. Maybe we could take money from Google. And this all occurred under Chatham House rule, which doesn't allow me to talk about who was there, but I think I can talk about what happened. And anyhow, it's been reported by the National Post. For a second, it was like, that's kind of a fun idea, you know? Like the big newspapers are playing with government money. What if we played with Google money? But then they're just kind of looking like, I don't know. I think we, we, we looked at the whole lay of the land and said, you know what? While we need the resources, this could ultimately discredit us. Even if we're completely transparent about it, mm. we're gonna look like puppets of Google. Yeah. And ultimately we made the decision no, we're going to fight this on our own. Mm -hmm. and so far, we've been pretty effective at publicizing our position without a budget. But if there is any money required, uh, the decision's been made. We're just going to pay for it ourselves. Is that the final decision, though? Well, that's a good question. Depends on how much money we need to to strategize. Because that's the thing. Like, my thing is, like, we're journalists. Journalists are not strategists. And we need to, if we want to win this, we need to recognize our limitations. And I'm certainly not uh, someone who who's, like, a political strategist. Like, I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. And I know the strengths and the weaknesses of our fellow journalist friends. You know, so <laughs> I think that personally, if I was to, to decide, I, I think we should get money. 
it would be preferable that it's not from Google. So well, beyond that, I don't even like doing it because I don't. I, I guess I'd rather pay somebody to represent us in some lobbyist thing than like be like a lobbyist because I, I I didn't get into journalism to be a lobbyist. Also, you know? it's a huge conflict of interest for you to go have lunch with MPs while you are reporting on them. Oh so, hell yeah! And now I now I have to give this big disclosure and, and offer this as like an editorial because I can't report on this stuff yeah. anymore. But you and I can fight about it in our next uh, coalition meeting. I think we'll just we, we should come up with the money ourselves. So to yeah. me, like it's kind of similar to C eleven in this case is like, who's invited to the table? And it's always about that, right? Like, it's really interesting. Like, the CanCon folks are going to get their content promoted thanks to this law. Good for them. But what about the people in their basement changing the world? You know, and I'm not talking about cat videos because good for cat videos, but... I mean, that's changing the world in terms no, of mental it, it health. No, it absolutely is. I, but, I don't discount those people at all. And, yeah. and some, some of these trivial things or seemingly trivial things turn out to be incredibly powerful things. That's and, true. You know, I, 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 I think what we're seeing emerge here uh, on both bills is the government and old power, yeah. old media stakeholders mm-hmm. on one side, and then politics makes strange bedfellows, but it's the new creators and big tech seem to be on the other side. Yeah. And it's weird, but that's where we're at right now. If we're coming back to BIPOC communities, but you just generally, you are not consuming Canadian content. I mean, in Quebec, I'm seeing it, but I think here it's the same. Like, not yeah. a lot of people are watching Canadian shows. Look, it's a ridiculous like, idea that they're going to tax. Imagine they tax, like, Canadian YouTubers and TikTokers, and, and then we're going to have a, a CanCon system where the next YouTuber is going to have to, is going to fill out a form saying, okay, I'm a, I, this is true CanCon makeup tutorial, and then that's going to get preferential treatment in the YouTube algorithm. It's not based on equity, actually. It's, it's not based just, on reality. It's, it's not, not how it works anymore. And it's also advantaging folks who have money and power and time to have this, like, probably really administrative person fill out those forms. A lot of youth are not consuming Canadian content. They're consuming social media content. Some of the best shows I've seen in French were done by these two comedians from Montreal North, Anase Usama. It's called On est là. And they're just talking about realities from the hood and the way they approach things. It's just so raw. It's so real. Now, these guys would never make it in Canadian content mainstream industry because they don't fit the mold. And they don't want to fit that mold. Right? They wouldn't they even bother. They would make content and try to hit a global audience and then start running. Like, the, people are building real dynamic businesses. Exactly. Like, they're not filling out forms. They're not waiting. Like, we're at a point where we're not waiting for approval. We're just doing it. Yeah. And that's what social media allows us to do. And that's what new media, independent media, allows us to do. That is Shortcuts for this week. Layla, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. This was fun. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything you send. Layla, where can people find you and where can they find your work? Yeah, they can find on La Converse Media on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and our website, laconverse.com. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by SoCalled. Syndications by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. 